Hey everybody, today I've got retirement news for the week ending Friday, August 13th, 2021. First off, a quick shout out to my friends in India. Specifically, I have a couple listeners in Ahmedabad in the Gujarat region. Um, to you, thank you for listening and I hope things are leveling out on the COVID front out there. So anyway, let's get started. Uh, earlier this week, I finished Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of times before, um, and now that I finished listening to it, oh, I did the audiobook, by the way, because I frankly no longer have the attention span that is required to sit down and consume an 1,100-page book. That said, uh, the audiobook was 62 hours long, so it was still a definite commitment. Anyway, it was completely awesome as an insanely long philosophy parable outlining in exhaustive detail through hour-long diatribes by the characters Rand's philosophy of objectivism. And if I were to distill her ideas into one sentence, it would be that the world only works if we, as individuals, work relentlessly to achieve our own goals for our own self-interests, not the interests of others. Um, if you're a devoted uh, Rand fan, you probably note that uh, that description is ham-fisted and lacking in detail and uh, nuance, but that's the basic idea behind her whole philosophy. So the first time that I ever actually even heard of Ayn Rand was uh, reading the liner notes of the Rush album 2112. Um, I was... I don't know if you remember that record, but for me, the first time listening to that thing from start to finish is just, it's etched in my mind. I was visiting a friend of mine um, in the soul-crushing East uh, Bay, California town of Danville um, around Christmas of 1984. I remember getting high, uh, my friend putting on that record. Um, and of course, by then I had heard uh, Passage to Bangkok on the radio, but I'd never heard the album from stem to stern. Anyway, I remember side one happening while I read the opening kind of story on the inside cover, which started with, quote, I lie awake staring out at the bleakness of Megadon. City and sky become one, merging into a single plane, a vast sea of unbroken gray. And it goes on, and, and I won't bore you with the, the whole little story, but as the 20-minute-long 2112 overture is building and, and going up and down, I'm super high, and as a 16-year-old kid, it was fucking cool, and I can picture that whole experience like it was yesterday. Anyway, uh, down at the bottom of the credits in that record, it said, quote, with acknowledgement to the genius of Ayn Rand. So why am I telling you this? Um, I have no idea. But it took me 37 years to finally read the book. And I still want to really encourage you to read that if you haven't yet. Um, it's crazy because so many little vignettes that happen in that book, which, by the way, I think it was written in 1957, are happening today. You know, the antipathy and vilification of successful people, um, legislated attempts to level various playing fields, supremely misguided social programs that end up doing more harm than good, uh, and a growing sentiment blaming capitalism for all our problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So read it if you dare. And if it makes you uncomfortable to read Atlas Shrugged, you'll probably get more out of it than I did. 
So that's it. Uh, anyway, next uh, up in the big news of the week is the infrastructure bill. Now, we've been hearing about it every night. The Senate was able to pass a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill this week, which was a bipartisan win for the Senate Democrats and the Biden camp. And get this, if you consider broadband internet to be quote unquote infrastructure, then nearly half of the spending outlined in this infrastructure bill is actually infrastructure. Now, for me, I'm cool with calling broadband internet infrastructure. But at the same time, mark my words, Google or maybe Elon Musk or Amazon will make some kind of satellite internet access ubiquitous way before our government is going to be able to accomplish anything in that department. So anyway, yes, this is an infrastructure bill where less than half of the spending is on infrastructure. Here was an improvised quote from Biden after the uh, passage of the bill. Quote, after years and years of infrastructure week, we're on the cusp of an infrastructure decade that I truly believe will transform America. Again, that was years and years of, quote, infrastructure week, W-E-E-K. So if you can make sense out of that sentence, you're a better man than I am. Um, what, what was an infrastructure week? Anyway, uh, and if you're looking for an infrastructure decade fraught with waste uh, buried in this bill, I'd rather stick with the former. Anyway, predictably, according to the super left faction of Congress, including octogenarian Bernie Sanders and 31-year-old waitress Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the bill is grossly lacking in programs to address climate change and what they're now calling, quote, human infrastructure, which includes universal socialist pre-K indoctrination camps for our children under five and free community college for our slacker children over 18. But we're going to get a boatload of social programs and new safety nets in the upcoming budget. So don't worry if you are counting on putting your kid into free community college in the coming years. And yes, a grand total of 19 Republicans voted for this bill, which was weird, but they're they're playing some kind of chess game, hoping that this bipartisan effort on the infrastructure bill will end up being some kind of deterrent for the upcoming $3.5 trillion budget disaster. It's not going to be a deterrent. The, we are going to see this $3.5 trillion disaster coming through. I can pretty much guarantee it. So what's going to happen to the spending power of your dollar if they keep spending like this? Um, I hope I don't have to tell you, but the spending power of your dollar is going to go down. The inflation numbers that the government releases, as we've talked about previously, are way below real inflation and getting a bit frightening. So yes, if you've seen the CPI numbers, it's getting frightening. So real inflation is going nuts and you should be scared. So the long and short of it is whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or whatever you are, you should be a little bit nervous. You should be concerned. We're all living in the warm, comfortable, soothing arms of an S&P 500 clocking in at over 4,400. We're so proud of our investment returns and there's just no end in sight. But when the market drops back to about 2,000, which is probably where it should be, how are you going to feel? What's it going to feel like having your net worth cut in half while at the same time 
consumer prices go up 20 or 30%. So I found an interesting chart of PE ratios of the S&P 500 since 1950. Now, this chart doesn't give an aggregate number specifically of what the average PE ratio is. It's just a line chart showing a horizontal line what with an average as a baseline for the last 70 years, and then how much above or how much below that average the S&P 500 aggregate PE ratio is in each given year. By the way, PE ratio, for those of you, if that's a new phrase to you, that's price to earnings, which is the ratio of a company's share price to a company's earnings per share. So it's on every chart for pretty much any stock, and it's a quick way to give you insight on the basic valuation of the company. So basically, you would uh, divide the share price by the earnings per share, and that number is your PE ratio. So pretend Microsoft shares were at 100 bucks, and let's say their earnings per share uh, for the last year or the trailing 12 months were $10 a share. That's a PE ratio of 10, $100 share price divided by a $10 EPS, um, and that's 10 bucks. Anyway, so as PE ratios go way above the average, you could deduce that stocks are overvalued. And on this chart, which I'll link to in the show notes, it shows how much over the average P.E. ratio of the S&P index it has gotten before market crashes. So, for example, before the 2008-2009 GFC, P.E. ratios peaked at about 50% or just under 50% over average. Okay, so right before falling to 34% below average. So that is a scary drop from 50% over to 34% below. Back before the internet bubble burst in 2000, PE ratios hit about 125% over the historical average. Okay, so if you were looking at that chart, you would have seen, oh, this is a bubble. And that was before crashing back down to just about the average. And we all got wiped out at that point. So um, for comparison... Now, today, we're at almost 100% over average. So back in the 2000, it was 125% over average before crashing. Uh, and now we're almost 100. So nobody likes an alarmist. And I personally have been freaking out about this since 2017. But based just on that chart, we are in a bubble. And you know what's fueling this bubble? Stimmy checks. Uh, enhanced unemployment that's brought up personal income by 30%, stimulus bills, and now trillion-dollar infrastructure bills, which are going to further temporarily prop up companies you know, that are going to benefit from these infrastructure projects like Caterpillar and green energy companies. Um, and nobody can really predict how much of a bubble this country can deficit spend its way into. But if you don't fear the impending collapse, please at least start giving it some thought. Okay, shit, that was long. I'm sorry. Um, I spend way too much time thinking about this stuff. Anyway, you should check out that S&P historical PE ratio chart in the show notes. I've got a link there. Check it out. Now, real quick, let's talk crypto. So this week, Bitcoin almost hit the $47,000 mark and Ethereum peaked at almost 3300 now, whether we're up for a serious breakout above 50,000 is anyone's guess, but I'm still dollar cost averaging my way into Bitcoin. Uh, and as I've said before, I don't recommend or discourage anyone from buying crypto. I'm just sharing this information because I'm into it. 
And remember, the grand total number of Bitcoins that are ever going to be produced in human history is 21 million. It's written into the software. So once all of those 21 million have been produced, there won't be any more. And right now, Bitcoins are still being mined and um, the end of the mining won't happen in our lifetime, but they're being mined at a slower and slower rate over time. It's called halving and we can I'm not going to get into that. So think about the finite number of Bitcoins and then consider that we, the U.S., are creating dollars out of thin air, new dollars, brand new dollars, trillions of new dollars, and those new dollars are coming in and making the dollars we already have less valuable. So does that make sense? I mean, I, I live and breathe this stuff. I majored in economics. I like to think about it. But if this is new to you and the idea of currency debasement is confusing, um, let me give you a quick illustration. It's probably not going to be very good, but um, let's say you're in a school gym. You've got 100 students. Each student has 10 bucks in his pocket, okay? So that's kind of the baseline. So there's uh, in the middle of the gym, there's a table with say 50 sandwiches, okay? So you got 100 students, 10 bucks each, 50 sandwiches on that table, and they're gonna auction off the sandwiches. Some students are just gonna wanna keep their 10 bucks and go get beers. And some wanna save all for clothes, and 50 of those students are hungry. Not all of them hungry enough to spend some or all of the money they have on a sandwich, but 50 kids are looking at those sandwiches and thinking that they're looking good. And 25 of those students are definitely going to buy the sandwiches if they can get them for, say, five bucks. Now, remember, everyone has 10. So before the auction starts, the majority of kids who do want a sandwich have decided they're probably going to bid five bucks. But then the principal throws $501 bills on the floor and says, grab what you can. And then there's a mad rush and it, kids run down and grab some. So now some kids have $15, some have 11, some have 13, and a few still uh, only have 10 left. But now more than 50 of the kids feel like they can afford that sandwich and still have some leftover spending money. So instead of 25 kids buying sandwich, because the supply of money has increased, say 75 kids now start bidding on those sandwiches when the auction starts. All 50 of the sandwiches get bids and the bids go well over five bucks because now kids have between them a total of $500 more to spend. So you get the idea. The number of sandwiches stayed the same, kind of like the amount of total available goods and services in our economy today, but because the kids had more dollars, instead of just 25 kids buying the sandwiches for five bucks, a bunch more kids were competing for those sandwiches because they had more money to spend and the price of the sandwiches naturally went up as demand for those sandwiches increased. And the value of the dollars, as shown by the increased price of the sandwiches, decreased. So, okay, so that was probably kind of a lame illustration but by pumping more dollars into our economy, it's kind of the same thing. It's pretty much irrefutable that those dollars become worth less. And young Gen Z people have figured this out. The Bitcoin community is disproportionately made up of young people who have a, an innate fear of the government trying to engineer the economy through money printing. They see Bitcoin as a safe haven, and I can't really disagree. Anyway, I'd encourage you 
just keep an eye on the crypto market and keep an open mind because, again, I say it every week, it's not going anywhere. And uh, speaking of crypto, there was a clause in that infrastructure bill about regulating cryptocurrencies. Uh, as of now, the language is pretty innocuous from what I understand. Um, the language in the bill requires crypto, quote unquote, brokers to report customer information, including transactions to the IRS. Uh, and right there, without getting into too much detail, is why Congress isn't really ready to impose regulation on cryptos. Unless you're operating one of the like big brokerage platforms like Coinbase or Gemini or BlockFi, if you're sending Bitcoin from peer to peer or from one wallet to another, you don't know who your quote customer is. And that's the whole point of decentralized finance. So some people who operate in the crypto world, like miners, stakers, and software developers who don't have customers or who don't know their customers have no way to comply with this new rule. And while the, this is great, while the Senate was working on the terms of the bill, Texas Senator Ted Cruz had a little shining moment. He wanted to pull that crypto clause out of the bill because he thought it was premature and Congress didn't have the base knowledge needed to even debate it. In his speech, he threw down a great one. His quote was, let's recognize that if we gathered all senators in this chamber and asked them to stand up and articulate two sentences defining what the hell a cryptocurrency is, that you would not get greater than five who could answer that question end quote. Um, that ended up going viral among the uh, Bitcoin Twitter community. He said it was wrong to regulate something they don't understand and called on future discussions of this matter. But to no avail, thanks for trying, Uncle Ted. Uh, one last thing about the crypto stuff. If you recall, a couple weeks back, I bought my first real uh, NFT from the Damien Hurst currency collection. Well, I finally sold my third one after flipping them and at today's price for Ethereum, I ended up with about 9,500 bucks. Um, the original cost was two grand to buy that first NFT. So that's a nice, tidy $7,500 profit. And that's, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. And uh, Ethereum keeps going up. So who knows where that'll end up. But it was fun. It was stressful waiting for that last one to sell because, you know, I'm, I was continuing to wait for the kind of bottom to drop out of that market. Um, and I'm not going to continue to try flipping anymore, but it was a good learning experience. And I'm psyched about the whole concept of NFTs and the technology behind them. Then the other day, just on a lark, I bought a new NFT uh that's from this collection called Cool Cats. And I bought one for 1.3 ETH and sold it for 1.6 ETH. And at today's prices, that netted me like, I think about a $900 profit um, for two days of waiting. So that was pretty cool. Next up, I want to share an event that's happening on September 15th that I think you might be interested in. It's a one hour online event put on by a local Portland, Oregon think tank called the Cascade Policy Institute. Um, Wall Street Journal columnist Jason L. Riley will be discussing his newly published biography, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Cascade Policy Institute's Vice President of Research, Dr. Eric Fruits, will be interviewing Jason Riley in this one-hour online event, which is, again, that's on Wednesday, September 15th at noon Pacific time. Now, I'm serious. You should really consider registering for this thing. It's free. It's only an hour, but it should give you insights uh, into one of the great, really one of the great intellects of our time. And whether you're familiar with Thomas Sowell or not, I think you'll get a lot out of it. 
And in case this is the first time you're hearing about Thomas Sowell, here's a quick bio. Economist Thomas Sowell is one of the great social theorists of our age. In a career spanning more than half a century, few scholars have matched his combination of range, rigor, and accessibility. He has written more than 30 books covering topics from economic history and social inequality to political philosophy, race, migration, and culture. His bold and unsentimental assaults on liberal orthodoxy have endeared him to many, but enraged most of his fellow intellectuals, the civil rights establishment, and much of the mainstream media. As a result, critics preoccupied with political correctness have demeaned, downplayed, or ignored his important contributions. I'll put a link in the show notes, so do yourself a favor and go sign up for it. And if you are interested in expanding your mind, check out Thomas Sowell's book, Discrimination and Disparities. I just started it, and it's totally awesome. Okay, next up... One last tidbit for you. So I've been interviewed on a few podcasts lately, and whenever I'm talking to new people, when they find out I'm from Portland, they always ask about the riots and the homeless population. Well, after a year here in Portland, most of the rioting is pretty much over, well, except for last weekend. Um, But our homeless issues, like crime, filth, biohazardous materials, like uh, used sharps and feces, and all the other fun things that homeless people bring to our neighborhoods— keep getting worse and worse. Here in the Northwest, uh, For as an example, we have a chain of fast food burger shops called Burgerville. It's, it's a pretty unremarkable chain, but it's kind of a fixture here. One of the Burgerville locations here in Portland had to basically give up and close its doors suddenly and without prior notice due to a homeless camp our city officials chose not to get under control. So check this out. The city had received at least... 78 complaints this year about homeless camps and trash at encampments within a thousand foot radius of this particular restaurant. According to a Burgerville spokesman, quote, the environment around the restaurant has deteriorated seriously. Police are now being called daily. Burgerville employees have found weapons, drug paraphernalia, and human waste on the property. So this particular homeless camp has about 15 tents and sits directly adjacent to Burgerville's parking lot. Residents of that camp think that Burgerville just spitefully closed its doors to get the city to sweep their tents. Um, The Burgerville Workers Union says that it was completely blindsided by the company's decision to close its restaurant. Side note, yes, in Portland, we unionize everything. Fast food restaurants, donut shops, bookstores, you name it. The idea of a meritocracy in this town is like science fiction. Oh, and Burger King had private security at that particular location to try and keep things under control, but apparently that was not enough. Anyway, here in Portland, we continue to pay the cost of inaction on this homelessness issue. The other night, two guys got shot in a neighborhood that has basically been taken over by homeless encampments. It's getting really bad here. So if you were thinking about coming to P-Town for a vacation... You might have seen the full-page ad that we bought in the New York Times a couple months ago encouraging tourists to come visit our fair city. Uh, That ad, if you haven't seen it, is all text. It starts with the lines, You've heard a lot about us lately. It's been a while since you heard from us. Some of what you've heard about Portland is true. Some is not. What matters most is that we're true to ourselves. 
So this all text ad goes on, and, and again, it's this is in the New York Times, dripping with sanctimonious horseshit. But I can tell you this: if you are considering a visit to Portland, wear thick uh, work boots or the like to make sure that the hypodermic needles that you step on don't pierce your skin, and bring mace. Okay, that's it for this week. Have a great weekend, and I will talk to you next week. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com. 